0: Welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast from the Natural Resources Council of Maine. In this episode, you'll hear from NRCM's Advocacy Communications Director, Judy Burke. Judy has served in this role for 28 years, and she's retiring at the start of January. In this episode, Judy shares memories, observations, and lessons from three decades of making news and navigating Maine's changing media landscape. Here's our conversation. Judy, this week you are retiring from NRCM after 28 years working here. For the past three decades, when people ask you, what do you do? How have you answered them? Great question.
1: Um, It's certainly been a pleasure working here and uh, my role is to put out to the world information on the most important environmental issues facing Maine and what we can do about them. And NRCM really tackles those issues in a big way, in a really important way. I'm proud to have been able to put in time doing that. Everybody else here does the hard work of the legal battles and the legislative work and the organizing in the communities. And my my job is to get out the word about that. So it's it's really been wonderful.
0: Could you share with us some memorable issues or environmental victories that NRCM has accomplished you know, during your time here, in
1: recent years, um, we've worked to establish the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument, which was a huge success and a huge wonderful thing. Could not have been done without the generosity of Roxanne Quimby and Lucas Sinclair, and also all of you know thousands of other people all throughout Maine and other groups as well who worked uh, to make it happen. And it was wonderful being there the day that it was uh, founded and, and announced and all that. We had a lovely celebration up at Millinocket and uh, talking to people in the community. One of my jobs was to produce a film the day uh, that it was uh, being announced and to interview people in the community from the Chamber of Commerce and local businesses and people at the Appalachian Trail Cafe and talk to them about what do they think about this and sort of get an on-the-ground uh, feeling for how, how optimistic people were and how people were feeling at that time, and it was it was incredibly heartening. Some of the high points um, have been uh, when we actually made physical change on the ground here in Maine, that changed the history, the course of history here in Maine. A lot of that was opening up some of the rivers here that had been dammed for 150 or more years. I got to watch the Edwards Dam uh, come out of the uh, Kennebec River. It was the first time in the country that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission decided that a river is worth more free than producing a little bit of electricity. There are now 4 million or thereabouts uh, alewives that are coming up every spring that had been blocked by this dam for 165 years. And because I do the media work and media um, relations work for NRCM, I was at all of these events to help organize coverage of them and, and talk to reporters and all that, so it was really uh, incredible, it was inspiring, brought tears to people's eyes. I remember talking to one reporter and he said, it brought tears to my eyes and he brought his daughter to watch, you know, because these are really earth-changing historic events that make a huge difference.
0: So I'd like to try to understand your role in that particular campaign um, to actually remove Edwards Dam, you know, throughout the course of years or months. What were you doing during that time?
1: What I was really involved in uh, mostly was bringing attention to why it was important. It was literally a sea change in the way people thought about hydro dams. How do you do that? How do you bring attention to that? So there were certain inflection points um, when the governor of Maine signed the agreement to let it happen. That was a big inflection point where media and other people were able to gather around and, uh, and see what we were doing to actually restore a river that had been terribly abused, frankly, uh, for over a century. You probably weren't born. (laughs) (laughs) What year was it? Uh, No, it was 99. You were born. I was born. One of the most exciting things that happened, uh, the night before Edwards Dam came out, Bonnie Raitt came to Maine and did a benefit concert for us at the Merrill Auditorium in Portland. And we all got to go to the benefit concert and hang around with her. And she put on, of course, a great show and she gave a lot of call-outs to what the wonderful work we're doing, freeing this river and, and bringing back all the fish and fisheries. And uh, that was a real high point for sure.
0: I'd like to hear your memories of the day itself. So sure. The day after her concert. That day! The day after the concert. Yeah, yeah. You're there. And yes. you just told us that people had tears in their eyes. And yeah. It was a very emotional day. From your perspective, professionally what had to happen on that day to make it a success what were you doing on that day what's going through your head to make sure that people are getting the message
1: Um, I had served on a committee that helped organize the event around that day, which included the ringing of the bells in the church as the dam was about to come out, which included um, coordination with all sorts of people. Bruce Babbitt, who was the Secretary of the Interior, he came here for that. The governor was here. Bernie Carson, who was our executive director at the time, they were all there. We had a band playing music, too. Uh, My job was to bring the media there, and we had CNN and we had the Wall Street Journal, and we had the Christian Science Monitor, and we had the New York Times wrote an editorial about it the morning after. And uh, we, I worked with media all around the globe. We actually had some Japanese and media and some from the Netherlands as well, who came to cover it. It was an incredible experience. Uh, CBS World News Tonight is what they were called. I don't know, a fellow from there came to report on it. So we had a big flatbed truck um, that was set up so they could get high enough up that they'd get a good overview of the actual dam removal and we had also hired a videographer to shoot the dam removal because people couldn't get close enough to it to like be right in there because it wouldn't be safe there was equipment uh, digging out a coffer dam as they call it a gravel temporary dam to let the water come through and it wasn't safe to have a lot of people down there but we did have one videographer who was able to set up and shoot that and that footage was able to go out to a lot of um, media after that.
0: Then a key part 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 of your role is to build connections with members of the media. How do you attract main journalists and international journalists right. to pay attention to some really important policy issues that are happening here. Right. What do you do? Well, so of course, the main journalists are naturally covering
1: these issues, and so that's uh, I basically inform them, I reach out to them, I call them, I email them, whatever. We have a relationship on an ongoing basis having been here 28 years. I've known a lot of these people are friends, and I've known them for 25 years anyway, or some more, uh, so that's wonderful. The national journalists really it, it took a different approach. I had to look at publications like National Geographic who writes about this stuff or all of these national publications. They weren't in my back pocket. They weren't people I had uh, existing relationships with but to get a call from some woman in Maine, hey we have this big thing coming up you may want to come cover it
0: uh, a lot of them took notice and came up. And so when you're crafting pitches for... Mm -hmm. Journalist, I'm not necessarily just speaking about the Edwards Uh dam. What do you want to include in media pitches to attract people's attention or make sure that people Realize how important something some issue
1: is. It's really important in my role here to not try to make big news out of something that isn't big news Because our um, our credibility is very important and we want people to understand that if I call them and say it's big news It's big news. Sometimes I say this is happening I thought you'd want to know you may or may not want to cover it. You don't want to oversell so that's a very important um, piece of it. But of course, we have made a lot of big news here. Maine was the first state to pass a law that set climate goals into, into law. And so when we did that, that was actually very big news. And it was the first state in the nation to do this. So when you have a first or a biggest or a best, it becomes news more easily, or if there's a conflict. Um, right now, there are conflicts over, uh, CMP wants to build this big transmission line, as you know, across Maine. And there are a lot of people in that region who definitely don't want it. And there are a lot of people for environmental reasons who don't want it, who live wherever. That When you set up a conflict like that, that's very appealing for the news because the news represents conflict a lot of the time.
0: You have three decades of experience working in the context of Maine's media landscape. Could you share some observations about the changing landscape over the past 28 years? What have you noticed? When I came to NRCM,
1: I had a map of Maine on the wall with little stickers where all the newspapers were, all the little local weekly newspapers, and we didn't have much of an internet at that Point at all, and we didn't email out any news releases to people. So there was a whole different ball game. So now, of course, media is twenty-four-seven. Uh, media is electronic, digital. Also, now we have one man who owns almost all of the daily newspapers in Maine, all except one, Um, and most of the weekly newspapers in Maine as well. He is not a controlling kind of guy, he's basically doing it as a business thing to try to keep them open. For anyone listening, what is this person's name? Reed Brower owns almost all of the daily newspapers in Maine and most of the weekly newspapers in Maine now too. And that kind of consolidation had never happened before, of course. There were a lot of little independent mom-and-pop newspapers in most small towns that were built up out of members of the community and owned by members of the community. And as the income model for newspapers changed, when they were no longer in print and they couldn't sell advertising the same way, that changed their ability to continue to thrive. So Reed is trying out a, a new model where articles that appear in some of his local weekly papers, uh, if they're important enough, will then reappear in the daily papers as well
0: you flagged consolidation of newspapers, the 24 seven news cycle and the digitization of news. What are some challenges that this model presents? And also what are some opportunities?
1: Well, the challenges are that sometimes at 9 o'clock at night, I have to send out a news release, which just happened, what, two weeks ago, was it? When you and I were on the phone? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> there was a vote in Jackman, Maine that affected the uh, transmission line. And so Carly and I were on the phone talking about, oh, well, we better send out a news release about this. So sometimes it becomes a 24-7 kind of news cycle. Before, I would mail out a news release. It would get there in a day or two, and they'd put it in the paper eventually. Uh, or, you know, obviously, I'd talk to people on the phone, perhaps, but... But so that's changed a lot. The ownership thing has changed a little bit in that there doesn't seem to be as much kind of public service media going on. There's a new, there's an organization at the state house called uh, Pine Tree Watch. Uh, they do have a, a bureau there, and they're trying to put out sort of big investigative pieces a, a few um, every year, um, and that's really great. Uh, there's public broadcasting, which does a good job of trying to be a public. Um, resource for news but the others are privately owned and they're businesses that have to turn a profit and therefore um, it makes it important that they have clickable stories on their um, websites and, and such and that uh, I mean it's probably always been that way to some extent but it seems more so more front and center these days
0: how would you frame any opportunities that are presented by yeah. new media models
1: yeah there are opportunities in that if I have a news conference in Bangor the, all the TV stations have relationships with TV stations down in Portland as well, so the uh, story can run statewide, even though, let's say, a dam is coming out of the Penobscot River in Bangor, um, so we can have one news conference. We used to do a lot of traveling north and south. And we'd have a news conference in the morning in portland and the afternoon in bangor or vice versa that's a lot of driving on i-95 as you know and now we do really less of that we decide on a location and just do it there and and hope we can cover the rest of it in another way uh, public broadcasting covers the whole state so they do a, a great job of being everywhere but now the papers have relationships um, in different places bangor daily news has portland bureau the digital media all share to some extent, when they want to, so uh, that may, that's an opportunity. It makes it a little bit easier to get the word out.
0: I'll conclude by asking, what have you loved about your job at NRCM? I just love being in the middle of all
1: this wonderful stuff when it's happening. I mean, I love Maine. I love Maine's environment. I'm the person who came up with that slogan, protecting the nature of Maine for NRCM, because you know, we we do protect the nature of Maine, that's a big thing. I love just being in the middle of it, and I love being able to, trying to explain things in lay terms, in terms that matter to people about why protecting our environment is so important. I think Maine is a culture. We all love the environment for different reasons, and sometimes we have to be reminded why individual actions really help us to protect the Maine that we do love.
0: My follow-up will be, what have you learned?
1: I've learned um, that uh, people want to protect the environment when given a chance. And although a lot of what NRCM does is way into the weeds, if you step back, it's all making a real difference to the big picture. And um, when people um, understand the difference it makes, they, they really appreciate it.
0: So Judy, what's, what's next? What will you do with your time? after you've retired from NRCM?
1: Well, well, I plan to spend a lot more of my time outdoors because working for NRCM is wonderful, except it's mostly under a roof and under fluorescent lights and in front of a screen or on a telephone. Occasionally it's in the field, but not that much. So I I expect to spend a lot more of my time outdoors enjoying the great state of Maine that I've been trying to
0: protect all this time. Thank you on behalf of certainly myself, uh, NRCM staff, and you know, many people listening and our members for all of the work that you've done to contribute to protecting the nature of Maine. I had no idea you coined that tagline, so <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Judy.
1: Thank you so much. Of course, it's been my pleasure uh, working here, and uh, and I've really appreciated the opportunity.
0: Thank you again, Judy. It's really an honor to have worked with you, so we wish you the best. And thank you for listening to Frontline Voices with NRCM. I'm Carly Peruccio, and we wish our listeners a happy holiday season and a great start to the new year. You'll hear from us again in 2019. Thank you!